Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Now the Bible turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 801. As we continue making our way through the book of Malachi, uh, we've seen that the theme or the message of this prophecy is that God wants our hearts. He is not pleased with uh, his people simply going through the motions of worship. He wants us to have a genuine love for him that results in authentic faithfulness. So last week, Malachi confronted the people for despising the Lord. He revealed that they were treating him lightly, as if he was not important. And this was evidenced by the fact that the people were offering meaningless sacrifices by bringing animals that were not up to the expectations and standards of the law and offering them as sacrifices. He's declared that a day is coming when the Lord will be worshipped by people in every nation of the world. While he would expect his covenant people to lead the way in that, right now they are doing exactly the opposite. So this morning Malachi is going to confront the priests for their role in all of this as we are reminded of the importance of godly leadership. So we're in Malachi chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. Malachi says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So as we pick up here in chapter 2, we're actually continuing uh, the second disputation that we started last week. There was, there was simply too much material for us to cover in just one sermon. But as the people flounder around engaging in meaningless worship, uh, the Lord sends a message straight to the priests. He says through Malachi, this command is for you. You see, in absence of a king after the time of exile, the primary responsibility for leadership among the people fell to the priests. And it was their job to teach the people God's word and to facilitate worship in the temple. And so the buck stops with them. And it's, it's true that the people are bringing worthless animals to offer as sacrifices, but the reason they're doing that is because the priests are allowing them to. And we saw last week in, in chapter 1, or back in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, that it was the priests who were first accused of despising the Lord. Right? And, and they have been treating him lightly, and so now the people are treating him lightly also. And the priests know what God expects but they are compromising as they allow the people to pretend to worship without really engaging in their hearts. And so if things are going to change, then it has to start with leadership. Now before we move on, 
Uh, I realized in conversation this week that there's a, a, an aspect of the text that we haven't clarified yet, and that's that in Malachi, God is consistently referred to as the Lord of hosts. Malachi uses that phrase more than twice as often as any of the other prophets do. And so it's worth asking in that repetition what that means and why it's significant. So the word host primarily refers to uh, a military force, an, an army of sorts, but it can also refer to any large group. And so anytime we get a glimpse in the Bible into the spiritual realm, we, we get descriptions of, of massive angelic armies that are beyond numbering. And, and we see uh, these magnificent creatures that are, we're unable to describe accurately, whose only purpose is to worship the Lord. And so these are the heavenly hosts. And Malachi's reference to them is supposed to serve to underscore how great and awesome God is, which should then inspire the people to offer him true worship. And so as Malachi refers to the Lord of hosts throughout this prophecy, he's consistently highlighting who our God is. He is the God who is worthy of our worship, of honor, and of praise. That's the significance of that phrase. And so with that in place, in, in verse 2, the Lord calls the priests to listen to what he is saying and to lay it to heart and begin to honor his name once again. We saw back in chapter 1 that this prophecy is an oracle from the Lord. It is an urgent message that is worthy of, of the careful attention and response of the people. And if the priests refuse to, to receive it in that way and continue going on with business as usual, then the Lord says that he will send the curse upon them. In other words, he will turn against them. He explains at the end of verse 2 that he will curse their blessings. And in fact, that he's already begun to curse them. It was a, a considered a great privilege to serve as a priest of the Lord. It was a, a very heavy responsibility on the one hand, but it also came uh, with significant and particular blessings and benefits. But now the Lord is in the process of removing those blessings from them. Not only that, but in verse 3, the Lord makes a particularly striking statement when he threatens to rebuke the priest's offspring and to spread the dung of their offerings on their faces so that they are taken away with it. Now, I've mentioned before that when I get ready to retire one day, my last sermon series is going to be a series called When God Gets Salty. And it's going to be a, a, a study of all the passages in the Bible where God says something that strikes us as disturbing or, or uh, shocking. And certainly this would include that. So what on earth is this talking about? Well, first of all, we'll, we'll define our terms. The word rebuke in this context, means to stop something. Right? So in, in general, a, a rebuke could be seen as a, a correction that is given in a particular context. But here, this is a rebuke that is effectual in nature, in that it actually accomplishes the stopping of something that should not be happening. And so for the Lord to rebuke the priest's offspring could mean either that he is going to prevent them from serving as priests, he's going to stop them in that sense, or it could also mean that he is going to prevent uh, them from having children altogether. But either way, the point is that there are going to be no more priests. Whether the Lord doesn't allow them to serve as priests or whether there's no one to serve as a priest. And this is confirmed by the symbolism 
of the next expression. So the word we translate as dung is referring to the internal organs of animals that would be discarded at the time of sacrifices. See, uh, it's not limited to fecal matter in that sense, but it certainly includes that, and it's gross either way. And so uh, the internal organs of animals were considered, in my opinion, rightfully so, to be unclean. And so when they came time for an animal to be sacrificed, all of the internal organs would be collected together, and they would be taken outside the city to be burned rather than to be offered to the Lord. So in the Bible, going outside the city is always a bad thing. Right? That, is, that is symbolic of being removed from being among God's people, being removed from God's presence. And as, as most of us are already aware, burning is always symbolic of, of purification or of judgment. And so the point here is that for the priests to have dung smeared on them would render them to be unclean. And the only thing that they would be fit for at that point would be to be taken off along with the dung outside of the city to be burned. So this is a figurative expression. This is not going to physically happen. It's a figure of speech. But that doesn't make it any less serious. The Lord is essentially threatening at this point to cut the priests off from among his people. And then in verse 4, the Lord explains that if it comes to that point, where the priests are removed from their place through judgment, then they'll realize that what Malachi is saying now is for real. He says, so you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand. And so what this means is that they can either realize that God means business now, or they can find out that God meant business later on once it's too late to do anything about it. But the reason the Lord is sending this message through Malachi is because he is offering them the opportunity to repent. It doesn't have to be that way. The Lord wants his covenant with Levi to stand. And when the Lord refers to his covenant with Levi, he's referring to the Lord's choice for the tribe of Levi to be the tribe from which the priests would come. And specifically, he's pointing to his covenant with a man named Phineas in Numbers chapter 25, who, who executes a man for taking the Lord lightly very thing that these priests are doing right now. And so because of his commitment to the Lord's honor, the Lord blesses Phineas and his sons to serve as priests. And so to summarize up to this point, the Lord is sending this message directly to the priests, and he is giving them the opportunity to repent, to begin honoring him instead of dishonoring him. If they heed this warning, that would be great. But if they refuse and reject this warning, then the priesthood as a whole will be considered unclean and the Lord will remove them. And this is a terrible irony because the sacrifices were designed by God as a means of drawing the people near to him. But instead, because of how the sacrifices are being offered, they're actually being used as a means of provoking the Lord to reject his people. Then as we move into verse 5, the Lord reminds the priests of what he intended them to be and to do. And so we'll pick up again in verse 5. He says, My covenant with him, referring to Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. 
He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And so picking up again in verse 5, the Lord reminds the priests that his covenant with Levi was one of, that was characterized by life and peace. That the Lord would bless the priests, and then he would bless the people through the priests. And in the beginning, the priests feared the Lord with an appropriate respect and reverence for who he is. They stood in awe of who he was and what he had done for them in establishing them as his people. But instead of awing at the Lord, these priests are yawning at him. Malachi is clear that they have broken the covenant, and if they don't respond to the Lord's uh, confrontation and his offer immediately, that covenant will be irreparably broken. Moving on to verse 6 through verse 7, the Lord reminds them that the priests originally taught the truth faithfully and kept the people on the right track. And he insists that that's exactly what priests are supposed to do. They should guard knowledge. They should protect the truth from, from error, from being compromised. They should be leaders that the people can come to for instruction and wisdom. That the priests were supposed to teach the people God's word and to intercede for them through prayer, and to facilitate worship in the temple by offering good sacrifices. But then starting in verse 8, the Lord reveals how far these priests have fallen from that intention. And so we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 8. He says, But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And so in verse 8, Malachi exposes what the priests are actually doing in contrast to what they are supposed to do. While they're supposed to provide direction for the people, they've actually turned aside from the way. Right? They've gotten off track themselves, and now they are leading the people astray along with them. He also says that they've caused the people to stumble. Of course, we're all familiar with the, the, the term walking to, to be used as a metaphor for the way that we live our lives. But instead of helping the people to walk and, and follow the Lord, these priests are actually causing the people to stumble and to fall through their instruction. It's one thing for a false teacher to attempt to deceive God's people from the outside. We expect that to, to happen. That's part of it. But it's a whole different thing for leaders to mislead the people from the inside. In the second half of verse 8, Malachi underscores the fact that these priests have corrupted the covenant. Then finally in verse 9, Malachi reveals the consequence of their failure. Because the priests do not follow the Lord and they show partiality in their instruction, meaning they, they pick and choose which parts of God's word they want to honor, and they, they pick which parts of God's word they want to ignore. The Lord says that because of this, he is making them despised and abased before all the people. Uh, this could be an indication that the people are already, even at this time, losing respect for the priest. Uh, but, but one way or another, it certainly means that apart from repentance, the time is coming where the people are going to despise the priesthood in the same way that these priests despise the Lord. 
And so once again, Malachi delivers his message and he leaves the ball in their court. What happens next is up to them. So in our passage this morning, Malachi zooms in on the priests of the nation and their role in allowing things to get to the point where they are. He calls them to account for their failure to lead the people well. He threatens to remove them from service entirely. And so just as we saw last week that a time was coming when the temple would no longer be the central place of worship, and so we see this morning that there would be a time when there would be no more priests. Of course, this comes to pass with the new covenant that God establishes with his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We no longer have human mediators, earthly mediators between us and God, because God has given us a great high priest who has made a full and final atonement for our sin through his own body, the sacrifice of himself once for all time. This is the foundation of the church. This is the the foundational message that we have for the world, is that we are sinners who deserve to receive God's judgment. But that in love, God sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin so that we can be reconciled to him by repenting of our sin, turning away from it, and placing all of our hope for salvation in what Jesus has done for us. This is the gospel. And now under the new covenant, every single believer has the responsibility of evangelism and discipleship. We actually refer to this as the priesthood of all believers. In in a certain sense, all Christians have a role to act as priests. And so in his first letter, Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous So under the new covenant, because of Jesus, every single believer has the responsibility to facilitate worship of the Lord by sharing the gospel and by helping other people to follow the Lord. And so when we, uh, this passage should remind us of the seriousness of that task. When we have a right view of who God is and what he has done for us through Jesus, that should cause genuine worship to spring up from our hearts, a natural response, which then leads us to represent him faithfully in our lives. So it's worth asking ourselves the question, is that where we are this morning? Are we faithfully engaging in our tasks to, to function, in a sense, as priests who facilitate worship of the Lord in every nation of the world? Are we actively engaging in evangelism and discipleship? Having said all of this, it's it's still true that the Lord provides human leadership for his people. He continues to do that. Because while the the whole church is responsible for the work of ministry, Paul writes in chapter 4 of his letter to the Ephesians, that the Lord gives churches, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so while every believer is responsible for engaging in ministry, pastors and other leaders do have a special responsibility to lead churches by equipping the members for the work of ministry through teaching and discipleship. So as we read this passage this morning, we're also reminded of the importance 
of having godly leadership. As John Maxwell has often stated, everything starts and stops with leadership. And that, that's true in any area of life, but it is certainly true with the church. While having good leadership doesn't necessarily guarantee that a church will be healthy, having bad leadership absolutely guarantees that a church will be unhealthy. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament has such clear expectations and, and guidelines for those who would be and serve in leadership. So if you remember our, our series through Titus, we saw that pastors are called to be above reproach. Paul says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, pastors don't have to be dynamic public speakers. They don't necessarily have to have a charismatic personality, although that helps. They simply have to be people who are committed to doing the job right, which is precisely where the Old Testament priesthood failed. And so as we go along as a church, we need to be careful and intentional about who we elevate into positions of authority and leadership. See, like priests, pastors have a similar responsibility of leading God's people to, to follow the Lord through teaching and discipleship. And if they do that poorly, then churches will inevitably get off track. Because this passage is an important reminder for me as your pastor. It's also an important passage for you to bear in mind as the congregation to hold me accountable to this. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If I, if I decide to start leading us to do things outside of what the scriptures tell us to do, then you need to call me on that. And if I don't get my stuff together and, and start going in the right direction, then you need to fire me. And I don't say that flippantly. But the fact is that there is too much at stake here to allow bad leadership to run our church off course. If the ministry of evangelism and discipleship through local churches is the primary way that the Great Commission is to be fulfilled, then every single believer has to take responsibility for their role in that. And we also need to have healthy leaders who will pave the way. So this morning, I pray that we will feel the weight of our task as, as God's ministers and priests in this world and that we will commit ourselves to embracing our role in fulfilling the Great Commission under the New Covenant. Let's pray together.